This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. That is kind of in the middle of your Bible. Uh, It's wisdom literature, so it's with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of uh, Solomon. So let me, uh, let me give you a little update on where we've been, and, uh, and you came back last week, uh, it got a little warm in here, and, uh, but you came back, and that's a good thing, so it is, it is great to be together. Let me say a couple of things before I jump in, and then I'm going to just jump in. Uh, one is, if you're a parent, um, especially if you're new, I met with the parents of those who have been here and kind of explained the series to them. So if you're a parent, I, I do know there are sixth grade kids and up potentially in the meeting, and the topic is marriage and sex. Uh, so I am aware of that, and I thought about that. I, uh, I talked to my wife. Actually, if you remember last week, in a very awkward moment, I dedicated the message to her, a message about sex, and uh, on our anniversary. And you'll notice she's not here today, but I want to let you know she is in children's ministry worship. As soon as they're finished singing, she'll she'll be back over here. So there, it didn't go bad. I don't want you to think that. Um, so, uh, but I asked her, "Hey, can I say this in church? Hey, can I say?" Th-? I asked her a bunch of different stuff. Could I say this in church? Um, and so I think I am edited, we're edited down uh, here well. So I am aware, and I just want to give you this assurance, I will say less than the Bible says tonight about sex. So I will not say more. I will say less, and there's a few times where I'm just going to say, without describing it, it is what you think it is. A few times I'm probably going to do that tonight. Uh, so I want to let you know about that. And then secondly, if you're new, I want to let you know that this is not really a sermon on marriage. We are in a series on sex. And so we did two sermons on the purpose of sex. We did a a message on what went wrong with sex. So we talked about sex and creation uh, with Adam and Eve, sex in the fall. And so we talked about Romans 1 and our our tendency towards idolatry, which affects all of our desires, including our sexual desires. Now we're doing two weeks on marriage and sex because that is, biblically speaking, the place that sex is to be experienced is within marriage. Uh, and so we're doing two weeks on Song of Solomon. So this will be, of the rest of the series, this will be uh, probably as, uh, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, it, it won't be graphic, but it will be as explicit as anything in the series. So I want to let you know that. Next week we'll do something on sex and, and singles. We'll talk about how does a single person live their life um, pure before the Lord. So we'll talk about that next week. So last week, uh, we looked at Song of Solomon, the introduction. I explained how to read the book, how to interpret the book. And we said, we believe that it is a book that's supposed to be read, uh, literally it's poetry. So not really literally, but you know what I'm saying? It's talking about an actual man and an actual woman who have sexual longing for one another, who then get married, which we'll read tonight and then consummate their marriage, which we'll read tonight. Uh, and so that's what it is about. And, um, And we talked about how God uh, gives sexual desire as a gift. It's not bad. It didn't come after the fall. It came before. God gives this as a gift. Uh, We talked about how, because this is poetry, we see that words of love are foundation for the act of love. That is, there is much verbal communication and love and affirmation that is expressed as the foundation of the relationship. Uh, And then we talked about the the charge that the lady gives in the poem, which is do not stir, uh, stir desire before it's time. So there's an appropriate time and place for sexual uh, relationships, and that is within marriage. So what I meant to 
about marriage, though I think I lost that thought, was that this is not just a book, uh, a sermon about marriage. It's a sermon about sex, which is a part of marriage. So if you're coming in, I wouldn't want you to think, wow, all that church, the whole thing, that guy, all he thought about marriage, he thought the whole thing was about sex. No, that's a part of it. It's just we're reading a book where that's the majority of what this book is about, sexual uh, relationship and the consummation of their uh, relationship. So I wanted you to know that. Okay, let's pray, and then we will jump into Song of Solomon chapter 4. Lord, we thank you for your gifts to us, your many gifts to us. We thank you for the word and how it's a gift that reveals truth to us. We thank you for our sexuality, that you made us uh, male and female, and that you call males and females to be joined together in a one flesh union marriage, and that you call that marriage so that we might glorify you, that a husband might love his wife as Christ loves the church. So we just pray, Lord, that as we look at this aspect of marriage, you would elevate our vision, that we would have a lofty view of the holiness of the sexual relationship. Lord, we pray that we would have your view, that it would be clear. We pray that you would shatter our misconceptions if they are informed by sort of a fundamentalism that is not biblical or if they are formed by a certain worldliness that is not biblical. Whatever the extreme, we pray that we would do away with those. We would shed those views, and we would just have a biblical appreciation for what you have given us in sexual relationships. So speak to us tonight through your word. Lord, I pray this would glorify you. I pray that uh, I, I would do this appropriately for the audience gathered here, and that you would be honored, and that we would all be instructed and helped by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. The context of chapter 4 is a wedding. And the verses right before uh, chapter 4 uh, have to do with this picture of Solomon. And Solomon is, is, is being carried on this, uh, this kind of couch, like a, a royal kind of throne couch thing. He's being carried in. And if you look at 3.11, the last verse before chapter 4, it says, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon Go out, O daughters of Zion, I'm sorry, with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, I said last week that the book may have been written by Solomon. We don't really know. I don't think he's the main character. I don't think he's the guy in it. Um, but he could be the author of it. It's an idealized love story is what it is and tells a story of how a couple comes together. Uh, it is poetry. It points at his erotic uh, oriented poetry that uses figurative language. It's not explicit. It is veiled imagery that communicates uh, sexual desire uh, and it presses us at points for sure. Um, however, the, the, the scene here is a wedding. I don't think this is Solomon getting wedding, uh, married, but it is written, uh, it is sort of is like a kingly guy, or it is written by Solomon, or it's connected to him because the first line of the book says it's connected to him. So it's connected to him in some way, and he may have written this. So the context on the day of his wedding. Now let's read verses one through seven. This is where we'll start in chapter four. Behold, he, this is the man speaking, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a, perf- like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. 
Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So this is the first poem uh, of the section that he is speaking to his wife. You'll notice verse 1, behold, you are beautiful. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful. So it's all about her beauty, and it's all about her physical beauty. And here's the first idea I want to bring up that may be familiar to us or may be different to us, but depending on our background, and, and that is this. There is a call, I believe, here by example to celebrate your spouse's beauty. Now, I'm going to explain this. To celebrate your spouse's beauty. The whole book of Song of Solomon is about, is about, uh, is, is a, is about um, celebration. And in this section, he is celebrating her beauty or as a guy, if you don't like the idea of your spouse celebrating your beauty, you know, celebrating your appearance or your handsomeness or uh, some guys, your hotness, whatever it is. I don't know. Some guys are arrogant, think they're all that. But celebrate the appearance of your spouse. Now, if you are married, let me tell, tell you this, as we saw from last week and we're going to see all this week. This, is, this idea is not in the Song of Solomon, the following idea. Physical appearance is unimportant. It's only what's on the inside that counts. I don't really need to notice my spouse's attractiveness. These these are not biblical ideas. I do not need to notice my spouse's attractiveness. I do not need to affirm my spouse and letting him or her know that he or she is attractive to me. What matters is that I affirm her godliness or I affirm his godliness. It's not important that I am aware of my spouse's attractiveness physically. I just need to be aware of their inward attractiveness. And if that is your thought, you are more spiritual than God. Because that is not God's point of view here. What is being highlighted... Now, again, this isn't all the Bible says. I mean, doesn't Proverbs 31, there's a mom telling her son, King Lemuel, what to look for in a wife. And what does the mom tell the son to look for in a wife? He who finds a wife finds an excellent thing. And she tells him charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Yes, that's what a mom should tell her son. And that is true. That is true. If we're speaking about a beauty that is external only with no inward beauty, with no fear of the Lord, which is an inward beauty. If all a woman has is external beauty, then biblically she's not truly beautiful because beauty is reflected in a heart that fears the Lord. So, yes, there is to be uh, a, a celebration and a primary in pursuing a spouse, a primary emphasis on character. Absolutely. But it's not an either or. And we love to either or things in the church. It's a both and. It's godly character 
and an attraction to my, I'm talking to married folk here, an attraction to my spouse. You should affirm your spouse's godliness a thousand times yes. That's all over the Bible. But let's do not ignore the reality that we are embodied people that join together physically and there is physical desire and attraction to the beauty, the shape, the form of our spouse. It's not unspiritual to think in those terms. As a matter of fact, do you know what to think about? We studied this, so you'll know. The first human words spoken on the planet that we know of that are recorded in the Bible are when Adam, when Eve is created from Adam, and when he meets her, he says, in essence, whoa, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. It means she came from me, and we're going to be one together. But don't you think in that language there's a little bit of an awareness that she is attractive physically to him? She's, he's like, whoa, look at her. She is like, she's not like the animals. She's like me, and he is drawn to her. I don't think he was just saying, wow. Oh, I don't care. I don't care anything about her form. I'm not even that. I mean, just you pray, don't you, woman? I mean, he's not just saying that. He's saying, whoa. Now he wants her to pray too. It's not either or. It is both and. And and this is what you see throughout the Song of Solomon. It is eight chapters that verse after verse, there are long sections of praise for physical beauty, for sexual allurement or uh, the alluring nature of the spouse. And there is praise for public parts, if I can say it that way, and there is praise for parts that no one is aware of and sees except the spouse, though they're spoken of in this letter, in this poetry a little bit. So that's the kind of praise we see here. Look at, let's walk through the wedding, this affirmation, and I'm, I'm going to say it's a wedding affirmation because that's the context. Look, verse one, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Behold means look, look, feast. I am feasting my eyes on this woman. She is beautiful. And if you don't get it the first time, he repeats it. Because we looked at last, last week, and we're going to talk about this some more. She is uncertain about her appearance in some ways and what he thinks about her. So he's going to make it, behold, you're beautiful. I love you, my love. And in case we didn't get that, let's say that again. Behold, you are beautiful, the verse says. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Now, if you were not here last week, uh, you'll realize that this is poetic imagery. And it's poetic imagery that frequently does not connect in our context, okay? Because we're going to be talking, we'll be at goats here in the next verse. So there's all kinds of things that do not connect with us. But we'll try to do a little work and explain what, they, what it may mean. So your eyes are doves. Not exactly sure what that means. Um, but the key here, I think, is behind your veil. She is veiled. And a woman would be veiled. Her face is veiled. A woman would be veiled at a wedding, just like a wedding would be now. There is a veil over her, uh, but even in this hidden sort of semi-hidden state, he notices her eyes. Now look, he is going to work from the top down, and then there's a section later, he's going to work, and because 
they haven't consummated their marriage, he's going to stop at her chest. And then later, after they're consummated their marriage, he's going to work from the feet up, and he's going to praise her um, everything. So that's coming. But this is where he starts. He says, next, after, after your eyes are like doves, your heart, I mean your hair rather, is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now we hear that. We go, man, goats smell. Has she not washed her hair? What that is? What are they saying? Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Well, this was meaningful because chapter one said she cared for goats. Bring your goats. She was asking, where are you going to be at noon? He was, she was checking on him. And he said, bring your goats and told her where to go. So she watched goats. That's meaningful to her. And probably what the picture is, if you could imagine seeing black uh, uh, goats coming down a hill together, he's saying your hair is, it's like shimmery, wavy, you know, blowing, shiny, like, like I'm looking at a hill and I see all these black goats coming down. The movement of your hair is beautiful. Your face is, you know, in, in, in framed by this beautiful, wavy hair that for us, it doesn't mean anything, but to them, it's like a flock of goats coming down the slopes of Gilead. That's what he says. Verse two, your teeth. Now this one's great. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. So like sheep that have been shaved and what else? um, They're washed, having come up from the washing. So your teeth are white and they're glistening. Girl could have done like a toothpaste commercial or something. She's got beautiful teeth. So your teeth are white and they're glistening. They all bear twins and not one among them has lost its young. So you have all your teeth. That's a good thing. <laughs> they, are, they are twins. They are symmetrical and they are present. <laughs> symmetrical and present. I don't know if she says the same thing to him. but uh, And probably we laugh but, and, and that's fine. It's fine. But probably we take dental care. We got a dentist right down here right front. We take dental care for granted, don't we? I mean, a lot of places in the world that have a full set of teeth, much less white ones, would be unusual. Um, and uh, so she, this girl's got her teeth, and they're beautiful. And so he's looking, so he's working his way he's down. He's looking at her. Your lips are like a scarlet, verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Her lips are scarlet. Perhaps she's wearing a lipstick for her wedding. She's maybe using cosmetics. Um, but he notices the attractiveness of her lips. I mean, is it okay? Is God, is it okay to praise a spouse or they're about to be married here, a spouse for their, their beauty? Should we? Oh yeah, I know. I told you your lips look beautiful. Like, well, I think like the first year we were married, I hadn't really noticed in 20 years that that is not a biblical idea. That is not, well, yeah, but you know, I appreciate your servant's heart. Yes. Yes. Appreciate her servant's heart. But appreciate her scarlet lips or whatever language you would use that would would highlight that as well, gentlemen. Your mouth is lovely. Not only her lips, but he loves her mouth. And the word translated mouth here can refer not just to, you know, this uh, kind of orifice right here, but it can refer to speech, your mouth. So it probably means her speech is lovely. The sound of her voice and the content of what she says. She speaks lovely words. That would speak to her character. She uses her speech in a sweet way. It's beautiful. It's lovely. I mean, he is drawn to her. This guy is putting on a clinic on noticing and valuing and loving one's uh, spouse's beauty. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. So her beauty's veiled. 
uh, but her cheeks are probably rosy is probably what it means. She's probably got kind of a reddish hue uh, to her cheeks. They're, they're rosy. Maybe she's blushing. I don't know all the stuff he's saying here, but they are reddish behind her veil. See, he's prayed. The whole point is we, we're to celebrate. I'm saying we're to celebrate. It's biblically appropriate to celebrate uh, the physical beauty of our spouse. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Now, he's not saying girl's got a strong neck, you know, looks like a lineman. He's not saying that or something like that. Uh, he's saying uh, your ta- your, the Tower of David, he is uh, likely saying that it is a picture of stature, a picture of stature, a picture of dignity, a picture of strength. And he says something about it. It is in, it's like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. Perhaps she has jewelry on her neck, maybe even coming up, necklaces or something of the sort, something around her neck. He's noticing there's, there is jewelry throughout at various points. Jewelry, fragrance is really big in this book. Um, but there, he talks about jewelry at several places. So it could be the rows of stone, like the Tower of David had rows of stone, so your neck has rows of jewelry. And then this is powerful. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. What's a shield? A shield is something you play defense with. So this girl has protected herself. We're going to see she has protected her sexuality. And she has played defense. But you know what's happening now? They are hung on the tower. The, sh- the shields are no longer in play. The def- we're done with the defense at this point. Because she's going to be giving herself to him. And so the shields are hung. They're not active anymore at her wedding. Verse 5. Your, I'm going to read 5 and 6 together. And uh, here is the interpretive tip. 5 and 6 go together. We're talking about the same thing. Verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. So he is now working his way down, observing her beauty. He notices uh, her breasts, and we don't exactly know, or I don't know, and people I read have all kinds of ideas of what does it mean that they are like fawns. I mean, I've read all kinds of, well, fawns are typically uh, shy and hidden, and she's modest, and it means that. I don't know. One, one actual guy who teaches Hebrew, so maybe, he says uh, it means they are graceful, sprightly, and playful. I, I don't know. I'm just telling you what Hebrew scholars say. Here's what I know. I know that he is admiring her breasts and that he is verbally speaking that to her. And that God's not embarrassed. God's not saying, man, you were doing great until verse 5, then you went and got all dirty on me. That's No, this is the inspired word of God. And God is honored by this kind of a language. Again, we don't know exactly what this means, but we do mean that we do know that he is drawn, attracted, and is celebrating this part of her body as well. He also says that they are like gazelles that graze among the lilies. What is he talking about here? Well, if you go back to 2.16, chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved, meaning the man, Uh, My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. So I'm going to be discreet here, but in chapter two, he is grazing among the lilies. Here, this is the picture uh, of her breast being, um, we're speaking of them as among the lilies. 
So he is anticipating being close to her. I'll say it uh, that way. The next verse, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Okay, when does the day breathe? That's sun up and the shadows flee. So all night, all night, I will go away to two mountains. The mountain of myrrh, uh, and uh, this is a, a fragrant, uh, myrrh is a fragrant spice, and the hill of frankincense, which is a fragrant spice as well. So what is he saying? Well, uh, he is describing two hills, and it's what you think he's talking about. And what he's saying is, I want to be right there all night long. And this is in the Bible. And it is poetic, but it is clear. Verses 5 and 6, it's not hidden. It, it's, it doesn't take an English degree. Uh, you don't have to have college-level uh, poetry skills to interpret what he's saying. So this is, he's drawn to her and he's anticipating, uh, being closer to her. I'll say it in that way. Okay. So then he goes after that and he says, verse seven, you are altogether beautiful. My love, there is no flaw in you. So he closes and he says, again, you are beautiful. He has just been praising her beauty. He's enraptured. He's enthralled with everything from her hair to her teeth, to her lips, to her neck, uh, and to her breast. He is, he's enthralled with her. And you look at this, he says, there is no flaw in this girl. So you read this. And if all, if you weren't here last week, if all you read was chapter four, you'd say this guy found like an ancient supermodel. He must be married to a supermodel. Cause he said, there's no flaw in the way he's describing her, man, I, that's amazing. But here's what we know from reading last time is that culturally, she wasn't beautiful. She didn't live up to the cultural standard of beauty because in chapter one, she sort of sheepishly says to him, hey, don't look on me because I am dark. And the reason I'm dark, it says in chapter one, is because my brothers made me work in the vineyard. And because I had to work all day and work outside, I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Literally what she says. My appearance doesn't look, girl, look right because I'm a poor peasant field worker. And in that day, the poor were darker. I'm not talking about whatever their complexion of skin was. It got darker because they, this isn't a racial issue, because they worked outdoors. The wealthy didn't work outdoors. So a royal princess, whatever her natural skin tone she was born with, it would stay that skin tone. Because she wouldn't be, she'd probably be shaded if she was outside. She lived inside a wealthy life. Poor people worked outside, which was most of the people. They worked outside. So she is not taking care of herself. And so if you look at the standard of beauty, you would look at her and go, wow, she's a poor working woman who is unkempt. I haven't taken care of myself. And she may look great on her wedding day, but she's, she, she just naturally looks working class outdoors unkempt. And she says, don't even look at me. So according to the standard of beauty of her day, uh, she would have been working class. The wealthy would have been lighter complected and always heavier because poor people didn't have much food to eat. So if you were skinny, okay, if you were skinny, that means you didn't get enough food because you were poor. And if you were tan or dark, then you, that meant you worked outside. So we said last week, their standard of beauty was a skinny woman that goes to a tanning booth, you are ugly in their culture, okay? That, because every culture's got a different standard of beauty. That's what we need to see. 
So, according to the cultural standard of beauty, she's not attractive necessarily, but according to him, she's without flaw. Now, why is that? Because, as one author said, your spouse is your standard of beauty and not the culture. We say love is blind. I only have eyes for you. She's the standard of beauty. In chapter one, she says, I'm just a lily in a field. And you know what he says? He says, uh, valley. I'm just a lily in a valley. I'm just this one flower in this huge valley. He says, no, no, no. If you're a lily, you're a lily among the brambles. He said, compared to all the other women out there who may fit the standard of beauty of the culture, according to all of them, if I look around and see all the cultural women, they are like thorn bushes and you're a lily. Why? Because she is his standard of beauty and not the culture. And we've got to get this. And then we've got to give verbal affirmation and praise to our spouse who is our standard of beauty. I can say unequivocally, your spouse is beautiful. Your wife is beautiful for you. I'm not, I'm not saying that about your wife, but uh, <laughs> you, uh, your wife is beautiful for you. And I can say, ladies, your husband is handsome and attractive. Well, how can you say that? She's not on a magazine cover. He's not on men's fitness he, you know, whatever, whatever uh, because you're married to him. That's how I can say that. And this woman wasn't necessarily special to anyone else, but he was to her. She may have been plain and ordinary and indistinguishable, a lily in a big valley. But he says, there's no one like you. To me, all the other women at the office, all the other women in the neighborhood, all the other women I see walking by at the mall. All the other women that were there when our family was down at the community pool. All the other women on the magazine covers, in the movies. All the other women's pictures that I see on their vacation on Facebook. All those women are prickly, dried out thorn bushes and you're a lily. That's what he's saying. And if we don't get that, if the comparison is what all's out there? We'll make our comparison to what all's out there. That's not a biblical idea because that's not how Jesus loves the church. Jesus says, I'm devoted to you. I love, I created and I love you. And that's what this man is doing. I think it's a total misreading of this book to say, wow, well, he married, you know, whatever the most beautiful woman in the world. He married the most beautiful woman in the world. Of course he would say that. No, he married the woman he loved. And that's why he says this. So we need a rethinking and same for the ladies, because she says to him in chapter two, we studied this last week. You're like an apple tree in a forest. So all the other trees are just plain trees, but you're sweet. You're, you give shade is what she said. So you're my man. You're, there's no one like you is what she is saying as well. So we've got to get that. And if we're going to the mall and looking around and we're looking on TV and we're looking in the movies and we're looking at the people who are in our classrooms at school uh, and wherever we are, work, if we're looking around at everyone else and making a comparison, then we're looking the wrong place. And same for the ladies. If you are looking at other, if you are coveting someone else's husband and wondering what would it be like to be married to him, if you are comparing your husband to other husbands, if you are, uh, re if you are imagining from a romance novel what it would be like to be with that imaginary guy, 
whatever it is. If your mind is out there and not at home commend, uh, expressing your attractiveness to your husband. And man, I, I thought this was just more of a man to women's issue, like a guy would compare his wife. But it, it goes both ways. And here's how I know that. I'm not a woman. But on sports radio, there is a commercial. That I, I, it blew me away. Uh, I, that sounds self-righteous. I was just surprised by the content of the commercial. I mean, I listen to this commercial, and it's two ladies at a swimming pool talking. And I can't quote it, but roughly this is a commercial. And if you listen to sports radio, you may have heard it. The one lady says, hey, how's it going? She said, well, okay, but uh, boy, not as, not, not as good as it must be going for you because I, they're at a swimming pool. Because when I saw your husband got out of the pool, man, when my husband took off his shirt, I was embarrassed. This is what this lady said. I was embarrassed when my husband took, but I saw your husband. What's he doing? Oh, well, I'll have him tell you about it. I'll tell you what I'm doing. And then he comes on. I'm taking a growth hormone. I won't mention the product name. I'm taking a growth hormone. And now I have more energy for my workouts and I'm buff and I'm amazing and blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, my husband's got to take that. I is the silliest thing. This is, this is a commercial. So it's just saying to every guy listening that, oh yeah, I need to get a growth hormone because my wife, I'm not her standard of beauty. Joe, who just got out of the swimming pool, who's my wife's friend's husband. That's her standard. You see what I'm saying? And so it's just selling off that feel. So we need to get our standard of attractiveness, our standard of handsome, our standard of beauty set. If your wife has blonde hair, then you are attracted to blondes. One blonde. One blonde. (laughs) Oh, that's not what I meant to say. If your husband is a bit pudgy, then that's the look. Not that he might could lose some weight. Maybe he'll lose some weight. I don't know. If your husband is tall, that is, that is your standard of beauty. If your wife is dark complected, that's your standard of beauty. If she's light complexion, that's your standard of beauty. It doesn't mean all of us can't enhance our appearance in various different ways. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that that, that spouse as they are, I, we're to love that spouse as God created her, him. And then we are to affirm that through speech to them. So I don't know what's meaningful to your spouse, but whatever, probably not these lines, probably not goats, probably not towers of David, but whatever is meaningful to your spouse, find those words and affirm their physical beauty and your attractiveness, your attraction to them, their character. Absolutely. But but that, that you're attracted to them personally, physically as well. Number two, this not only celebrates, he didn't cel- only celebrate the spouse's beauty, but celebrates intimacy. The next section is going to lead up to the consummation of their marriage. Verse eight, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon, depart from the peak of Amana and from the peak of Sinir and Hermon from the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. I really don't know what that means, but he's telling, cause she's not in Lebanon. She's like at the wedding. So I don't know what that means, but she's saying he's wanting her to come away from, maybe it means danger, den of lions and things like that. Come away from those places and come be with me. Verse nine, uh, by the way, verse eight is the first time he calls her bride. We know they're married at this point or they're at their wedding or they're married. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. There's no example in the Bible where a man speaks to a woman as a bride that they're not married. 
Okay, he's going to use this word now frequently. Verse nine, you have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. Sister's a term of endearment. They're not really blood relatives. It's a term of endearment. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. He's saying the heart in Hebrew, the heart was the place we, for us. The heart is a place of feeling. I give you my heart. Uh, for the Hebrew, the heart was a place of thinking. So he's saying, you've captured my mind. Uh, you, uh, I, you drive me crazy. I can't keep my head about me when I'm with you. That, that's what he's saying. With one glance of your eyes. Verses 10 and 11. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. I mean, he's calling her bride. They must have just said, I do. Because he's, this is three times in three verses. He hadn't said it the whole book. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. All right. So he, th- th- there's a lot about taste and smell in this book. And he is the fragrance. Her fragrance is better than any spice to him. Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So he's now talking about her lips again. They drip Nectar, uh, he says, and so he is, he is, this is speaking of kissing her ultimately. He says, honey and milk are under your tongue. This is a, this is all good and they're all provocative. This is a line though, because what he's saying, milk and honey is representative of the promised land. And he's in essence saying, when I'm deeply kissing you, when I'm kissing you deeply, I'm in the promised land. That is a good line. Some of these, you, a lot of these you can't use. That one you might be able to pull off. Just like, that is a good one. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in the promised land right there. Okay, so then verses 12 and 13. Again, this is all about kind of celebrating uh, intimacy. And here her sexuality is going to be compared to a garden. So verse 12 and 13, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard with saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. So he's saying, she is like a garden. And what we're about to see, let me just give you a preview, is their garden represents her sexuality. Now, when you think garden, don't be thinking like your little raised, sorry, three tomato plant deal in your backyard. Okay. That little platform. And it's like, man, that's not very, we went from promised land to this little garden. That is not very complimentary. Gardens in their day were very different. I mean, think Garden of Eden. We talked about this. A garden is a walled, probably with hedges, a walled area that the wealthy had. And you would plant uh, fragrant uh, plants, trees, fruits, spices. And it would be beautiful. It would be irrigated and watered and wealth, and they could be locked. And a wealthy person would go there and relax in a luscious paradise. That's what a garden was like the garden. of Eden. It was a luscious, a walled in luscious paradise. It's not your vegetable garden. It's that beautiful. It would have been the height of beauty. You know, be like going to have your own private arboretum or something like that. 
uh, botanical gardens, but it's all private. It's hedged in and it's you and it's got a bubbling brook and it smells the most fragrant smells and you could pick fruit off the trees and the green, the colors, the flowers, you get the picture. That's a garden in their day, especially one that would be locked. And he says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. What is he saying? He's saying that she, this is describing her sexuality, that she, these are metaphors of privacy, that she has reserved herself. Her garden has not been open. Her waters, uh, uh, immorality in the book of uh, Proverbs is described as like just kind of casting or spreading your waters, so to speak, um, like flowing, overflowing water. So her, her situation is her fountain hasn't even run. It's, it's sealed. Her spring is, uh, the water spring is locked. So it has been private. Um, and now that's about to change, but it's saying she has reserved herself now exclusively, exclusively for him. Now, what is it? What do we make of all these things in the garden? Because when I started studying, I was going, man, I can't, I don't want to, do I study each one of these things and have five minutes on henna, two minutes on nard? No, here's the point of it. All of this stuff could never grow in one garden. Some of them are exotic plants from different points at parts of the world, and they wouldn't all grow together. What he's saying is this is a fantasy garden. This is amazing. You can't have all of these things grow in this one spot here, wherever they are, Jerusalem, wherever they are. You, you can't have all that. And so the, her, her garden, her person, her sexuality, her person and her body, her, her sexuality, which she has kept private, that, that is... Uh, it's a fantasy garden. It's, 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 ama- it's aromatic. It has sweet fruit, all these kinds of things. And uh, she's kept it private, but it's unlike any garden. And the way we know that is has the choicest fruits, he says, verse 13. It's got all of that. Verse 16, this is evidently her speaking. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow And now look what she says. She offers this invitation. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. This is the consummation of their marriage. It's expressed uh, beautifully. There is clearly a wall up. It's not pornographic. We're not watching what is happening or anything of the sort. Um, But the way it's described is absolutely beautiful. And we know this for a few reasons. Let my beloved come to his garden. It means enter, to enter into, um, and, uh, or to go into. And it's actually, the verb is used in the Old Testament for sexual intercourse. So when Boaz uh, marries Ruth, it says, and Boaz went into Ruth. That's what the Bible says. He went into her and she conceived and had a child. So the going into the garden is... It is, uh, it's a metaphor, but it's not a difficult to understand metaphor based on how the word is used elsewhere in the Bible. She says, let my beloved come to his garden. So it's now changed. She's given herself to him. Unless anyone's worried that uh, if you're new to the scripture, say, wow, is that sexist? Like he owns her, he gets her. Does that go both ways? Absolutely. First Corinthians says the man does not own the married man does not own his own body. It is his wife's. So this, this goes both ways. It's a mutuality. It's just speaking of him here, but it's a mutuality. And then he says, verse one of chapter five, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh, 
with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. That's, that's not explicit, but um, I guess I would just say he was really enjoying himself. I think that's the best translation at this point. And then we see the others. This is amazing. So they're not watching. It's not like that kind of a thing, but they're obviously aware of this couple that is having sex as newlyweds. And this is what the others say. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, the ESV just says it's others. Some people say it's interpreted as the daughters of Jerusalem speaking. Some people think it's actually God speaking. I mean, ultimately, it is God speaking. He inspired it. But so this is being celebrated. They didn't go do something nasty, okay? They are enjoying all the pleasures of this fantasy garden, which is their sexual relationship. That's the picture of their sexual relationship. And God, through whomever, his own voice or through someone else, is saying, go for it, be drunk with love. This is the only verse in the Bible I'm aware of where God endorses getting drunk. It's the only place I know of in the Bible. He is saying, be intoxicated with your sexual experience. Get lightheaded about it. Lose, lose yourself with your spouse, with your lover. The whole idea that God is opposed to sex, just from an idea that he created it so to start with, we know that's not the case. But it's just bad PR. God's got bad PR in our culture. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing two messages on this with kids in the room is because I want us, all of us, and even the next generation to to hear God's heart about sexuality. I'm not being crude here or anything like that. Uh, This book just shows that God is, gives it as a gift to be celebrated. He's not opposed. He is encouraging. He's not just saying, have a sip. Okay, now you're married. So of your sexual relationship, have a sip. Okay, now just don't let that happen again. That's not what he's saying. He's saying get drunk with uh, your lovemaking. The the man earlier said, all night, we saw, all night, I want to be at the mountain of myrrh and the mountain of frankincense or whatever the two spices were. All night. He's saying, okay, all night, be drunk with love. One commentator said this, their abandonment and self-giving is thoroughly approved and endorsed. There is to be no reserve, no restraint, but a complete and happy enjoyment of each other in their mutual love. They are to become drunk with lovemaking. They are to be inebriated on a physical and emotional high. The Bible describes sex between a married couple as a celebration of intoxicating love. A call to be intimate, revealing one's heart and one's body to someone that you are covenanted, committed to for life. It is a sharing of a personal garden of delight. And so I want to lay this out, especially for young people in the room, because the culture says as, have as many sexual experiences and as many varied experiences as you can, and you will be experiencing paradise. And the Bible says, no, that, that's really not the case. That's not how God designed it at all. I think the section we just read is the best apologetic uh, for keeping uh, yourself, for not having sex before marriage. I think what we just read is. God is not, uh, God is not trying to uh, you know, keep you from having any pleasure while you're young. God is trying to preserve so that you can have maximum pleasure. All night, drunk in love, sexual pleasure. That's what he has for you. 
biblically. That's what he has. And so the idea is that, oh, man, God's again. He don't want anybody to have any fun. He says you can't have sex until you're married. That is so outdated. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have pleasure. Uh, No, you're going to waste yourself. You're going to scar your heart. And you're going to give yourself away. And you're not, you're, it, it's not going to bring you pleasure. It's going to bring you emptiness. And you're not going to be in a garden of delight. Uh, you're going to be in that little tomato plant thing I described. It's, it's a, and, and with weeds, and it's dying. And you're going, that's producing nothing for me. That's the truth. Now, if you're here as a single, or, and you've already, uh, you're sexually active or have been sexually active, I want you to know there is grace. You can today receive forgiveness. If you haven't, if you're currently sexually active, you can repent. If you have been, you can receive grace today, the forgiveness of the Lord, and you do not have to walk in shame and you do not have to go into your marriage doomed to some kind of failure. Absolutely not. The grace of God is forgiving. So I'm not saying that there's some kind of, you ruled yourself out. I am not saying that that's not the message of grace. But the truth of Scripture is also, then you want to today, like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. You want to say, I want to go and sin sexually no more so that I am looking for this day that's described in the Scripture. But I think the reason I'm going through this, I think it's the most, it's the best argument for not having sex as a single person is that there's something glorious that awaits. It's so good. It's not, God's not saying sex is not good. He's saying it's so good that it must be reserved for the right context. Like a fine wine, it must age and be prepared for the moment of celebration. God's not cheating you out of pleasure. He's setting you up for greater pleasure. Believe that. He's not cheating you out of pleasure. He's setting you up for greater pleasure. And if you have already Uh, cross that line, you can receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And uh, you are, so please hear that. And then you can, you can be married and enjoy uh, a wonderful sexual relationship as well. Lastly, celebrates a lifestyle of love. This isn't just the only time they consummate their marriage in the book. I mean, the only time they have sex in the book. It's the first time it's when they consummate their marriage. It's interesting. What we just read, uh, him going to the garden and eat friends and drink chapter five, verse one. It is the dead center of the book. There's 111 verses before it. There's 111 verses after it. This is the center of the book. It's the focus of the book, but it doesn't stop there. They have a lifestyle of love, uh, that continues. I mean, if you go to chapter seven, the same stuff is happening later. Chapter seven, verse one, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? O noble daughter. He's at it again. Poor people did not have shoes. She probably had work, uh, weary, beaten up feet. She's not going down here uh, on every street corner in Frisco and getting a pedicure. Okay. She didn't have that luxury. She worked outdoors likely without shoes. So her feet probably don't look like a royal princess's would in sandals, but he's praising her feet because she's his standard of beauty. How beautiful are your feet? Oh, noble daughter is what he calls her. Yet she was keeping goats and working in the fields, but she's noble. She's his princess. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. God shaped your legs beautifully for me. 
Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. That's an unusual comparison. I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, she had an any. I know that because she's stored. <laughs> she can, that was the one inappropriate comment for tonight. No more. That's it. She could store wine. Okay. Uh, but here's one. Your belly, this is important. Let me reel it back in because that was unfortunate. Your, your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Don't try that one, guys. But we got to get this standard of beauty stuff. A heap of wheat means she had a belly. Okay? And I read that in the ancient Near East, a sexy woman, the, the sexy woman looked semi, not semi, looked uh, newly pregnant. What's the word? Like not nine months, but you know, kind of pregnant. You're not kind of pregnant. She looked like she was pregnant. Okay. That was the look. Okay. So now it's, he's saying you don't have a six pack. That would six pack abs. Forget abs of steel. That's ugly. That's poor woman stomach. I don't want abs of steel. Woman, don't you, you need to get a meal. You need to eat. We're royalty around here. You've got, you're a heap of wheat. She's got some belly and he loves that. Okay, why am I saying all that? Because she's his standard of beauty. Now that probably was actually, that one was part of the standard. So there he was affirming a cultural point of beauty. So he's not, he's not saying guys, uh, <clears throat> hey honey, you going to the, when are you going to the gym? Going to the gym, working on that out? Hey, let's do some sit-ups. You know, he's not doing that. <laughs> he's saying you're my standard of beauty. Okay. Same thing. Her two breasts are like two fawns. Still not sure what that is. Her neck is like an ivory tower. That's all repeated. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks down on Damascus. Again, I don't know exactly what all the metaphors mean, but do you get that he's, he's back? We're already married now. So can he give up with all the mushy stuff? They're married. I told you I loved you when we got married. If that changes, I'll let you know. He's not, that's, he's not that guy. He is praising her. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Your flowing locks are like purple. The king is held captive in the tresses. Your hair is royal. I'm captivated by you. How beautiful and pleasant you are. Oh, loved one with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Here's a different image. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. That passage means exactly what you think it means. That's all I'm going to say about that one. It just means that. She says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over his lips. So your mouth is like wine. It goes down smoothly. So uh, speaking of uh, their kissing and they're together. And look what she says in verse 10. This is powerful. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Seven chapters into it, man, she is saying, he desires me. I give myself freely to him. He's my beloved. Like last week I said, she's a stick of dynamite, but he let the, lit the fuse because he has, he has secured her. Okay? She is his. She knows for certain his desire. There's things about me that she would say, I know aren't culturally beautiful. There's things about me that are plain, that are ordinary, but his desire is for me. We've been to the garden. He's climbing the palm tree, all this stuff. I know he desires me. 
He says it, and I can tell. Okay, I can tell. He desires me. I am his. And if that's not enough, here's how the whole book ends. We're, we're done. This is the last verse, and I got some application. Here's how the whole book ends. 8.14. Now, do you remember last week I told you this woman started it off with a bang. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. But I said, man, this woman, she, she, well, she is, well, she's there. Okay, here's what she says at the end of the book. After all this, we've had a couple of scenes where they've been described to each other and been intimate. After all this, she says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. What she's saying, hurry up. Gazelle's the fastest animal, right? Is anything faster than a gazelle? Hurry up and get up here. Get to the mountains of spices, which we already read what the mountains of spices are, the hill of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. She's inviting him back to that part of her to be close again. Hurry! This woman, she is ending it where she started it. She is wanting But how did that all happen? She just naturally has this sort of enhanced libido or something. No, there is a love relationship. This guy cares for her. He notices her. He, is, uh, he puts her first. He prefers her. He honors her. He speaks to her tenderly. She is his everything. He's not looking around. They're not going out and she's slapping his face. Don't be looking over there. Don't be looking over there. He's not looking around because it's all just a bunch of bramble thorn bushes. Who wants to look at a thorn bush when you got a lily right next to you? He's all about her. She's saying in chapter seven, I'm his. He desires me. And now she's saying, get back up here. That's what she's, that is the Bible. That's not me. Okay. I'm going to be very clear. I didn't make this stuff up. Get back up here is what she's saying. Come see me. Come visit me again. Hurry like a young stag to the mountains of spices. If you're, let me make a couple points of application. If you are not married, and when I use the word single, I know urban slang means single that you're, you're not, you could be in a dating relationship. You're not single. When I say single, I mean not married. So I don't mean the Urban Dictionary definition of single. I mean not married when I say single. So if you are single, not married, um, I've got a sermon for you next week. But I, I, I just want to, I hope this book is inspiring to you to look down the road with anticipation and see this as something to wait patiently before the Lord for. And... If you're never going to be married, then I hope you see this as valuable for the married people in the church, because all that we're talking about is about fidelity. It's about commitment. It's about covenant. It's about integrity. It's about companionship. And the church will be much healthier when marriages reflect that. So it's to your good for the marrieds in the church to be having healthy marriages, which a symptom of a healthy marriage or a fruit of a healthy marriage would be a healthy sex life. Uh, it's the result of a relationship, though. It's, it's not an end. In it. I mean, it's not just something on its own. If you are married, I'm going to ask you, where is God speaking to you through this poem? The poems we read. We didn't read them all. Are you celebrating the beauty of your spouse inside and out? Are you celebrating the handsomeness of your spouse? Are you celebrating the character of your spouse? Are you affirming them? 
this is, a, this is a question for us guys. That verse 710, I'm my beloved's and his desire is for me. Would your wife say his desire is for me? Is she secure, unashamed, free, celebratory when you are together based on your love and care for her? If not, how can you help her? And how can the, how's the Lord calling you to change? How's the Lord calling you to change? How can you affirm her, especially, especially, and this is in the text, especially where she's uncertain? It doesn't mean going overboard or be going crazy. If some, she doesn't like her, I don't know, her eyes. It means 15 times a day, love your eyes, babe. But, you know, I'm not saying go crazy about it, but does she know that that part that she wonders about, she doesn't have to wonder about what you think because her eyes are the standard of beauty by which all other eyes of all other women are measured and they're thorn bushes and she's a lily. Does she know that? Does she know that? Does he know that? I skipped the passage. You guys can read it on your own. I meant to read this, but there's a whole passage where she goes down and praises his body. It's uh, chapter 5, verse 10. You can start there later. His legs are alabaster columns. His arms are rods of gold. Amazing. So anyway, you can go read that. I, didn't, I meant to read that, but we're out of time. I'm not going to go back and read it. It's not the point right now. But like, she does the same thing for him. Exact same thing in chapter 5. So... Is your husband know that you affirm his appearance? Oh, my husband doesn't care about that. Are you sure? Maybe he does. Maybe that would mean something to him. So are you thanking God for his handsomeness and communicating that he's your standard of beauty? That if you go to the gym, ladies, you're not at the gym, just evaluate what other guys are there, uh, you know, working out. And, but you're, you're, you're th- no, my husband is my standard of beauty. All I see is a lot of thorny, thorny shrubs looking at themselves in the mirror. Uh, that's all I see at the gym. What you looking at? You're a thorny shrub. My husband's a lily. Oh no, he's an apple tree. Forgot he's an apple tree. Are you celebrating intimacy like this? Is there a growing connection spiritually as together as a couple, as friends, as companions, as lovers? Some of the singles this question may sound a little bit, really, you're asking this? Yes. Is, is intimacy a burden or a joy to you? Because there'll be some couples that have been married for a while. It's, it's a burden. It's a burden. It's not a joy. Is your sexual relationship growing? Because theirs appears to be. We don't know how much later it is, but it's a whole lot later. She's saying, get, act like a gazelle and get over here. Okay. So she, they're still growing or is yours plateaued? Uh, a growing sexual life is reflective of a growing marriage, a growing love life, a growing love relationship. Listen, if you struggle in this area, as we talk about this as a couple, if this is raised, oh, why are we talking about this again? This is the, the second and last message on it. But you're going, oh, why are we talking about this? If you're struggling in your sex life, unless it's a physical issue, see a physician, if it's a physical, physical issue. But if it's not something that can be medically treated and you're having trouble in your sex life, then it is probably a relation, relational issue. It's a love issue. It's a, it's a companionship. It's a trust issue. Um, there may be some kind of anger or something that separates you or some kind of shame that needs to be dealt with, okay? We're going to offer a class in the fall. We're going to do some fall classes starting in September after this service, adult education, Sunday school, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're going to be doing some classes. We're going to do, I think, three or four. But one of them is going to be on marriage. 
It's not a class, on, it's not a sexual counseling class, but it is on marriage. And a lot of things get worked out in the bedroom when they get worked out in the heart between the couple. And uh, so anyway, I would recommend you take that class and, uh, and see what the Lord may have for you to grow in your marriage uh, as well. Maybe you need to get some help in this area. This is an area that I think we want to grow in as married couples. So if past abuse is hindering your intimate life, maybe it'd be good to get some biblical, sound biblical counseling in that area. Or if you're enslaved to pornography, we're going to have a source to help you in a couple of weeks. I'm going to talk to you about, uh, but you need to get some help there. If you're enslaved to pornography, it will affect your intimacy. Please know that if you're single. If you're married, if you're enslaved to pornography, it will affect your intimacy. Why? Because you're inviting other people into the garden. They may be virtual people, but they're coming into the garden. And when there's not supposed to be anybody else in the garden. And so that hinders the trust and the intimacy of the marriage. So let's get some help. We're going to offer you some help in that. So I'm going to give you some help if that's, if that's an area as well. So are you growing in intimacy? Are you growing in, in, um, in celebrating beauty as well. Ultimately, the last idea, we find our security in Christ and not the love of the other, of another, because she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. But that is never to be our ultimate security. You cannot be ultimately secure because your spouse loves you. Your spouse is human. Your spouse is fickle. Your spouse will fail you. Your spouse will get angry. Your spouse will have a bad day, a bad week, a bad year. And so ultimate security is in Christ. We must be able to say, I am his, I am my beloved's, meaning Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. We are his beloved. His desire is for us. It's not a sexual desire, but it is a desire for us that is loving, that he laid down his life, that he died for our sins and gave himself for us because he loves us. We are the Lord's His desire is for us, and that is our security. So as we've gone through this, if you are are single, if you're in a good marriage, if you're in a bad marriage, whatever your situation, you want to be rooted, not in that, but you ultimately want to be rooted in I know I am his, and that is my joy. If this study has opened up some kind of wounds in your life, then the place to run is to Christ, because we are his He gave his life. He loves us and gave his life so that the father could adopt us and bring us into his family. If this study has spotlighted regret in your life or spotlighted disappointment in your life, look to Jesus who loves you and desires us as his own. We are his bride and he has suffered unimaginably for us on the cross and is returning for us. And we will meet him at a wedding feast, the wedding feast of the lamb. That, that is the ultimate hope is that the groom comes for the bride and we celebrate the people of God with him. Receive his love. Maybe you've never done that before. Receive his love Believe in him. Recognize your sin. As we read this, we all fail. There's nobody who read this and go, oh, wow, they were just taking notes on my romantic life. No, none of us. This is the ideal. And when we read this, we go, we've all failed. We've all been selfish. We've all been haughty. We've all been proud. We've all been uh, all about ourselves as lovers. We've all been all about ourselves relationally. We all sin. We all haven't kept protected our garden. We don't now. 
as married people, we mentally don't protect our garden at least. And so given all of that, we may look at this and find where you fail. Come to Jesus because you are your beloved and he is his. And if you've never turned, turn to him in repentance and faith. Believe in him. And now, once we're secure in his love, as we are being growing in security in his love, then we express that to our spouse. And our spouse becomes secure because husbands reflect Christ as they love the church and wives reflect the church's devotion and love to Christ. But that only happens if we're secure in what Jesus has done for us. If our foundation is his love for us, that's the only way we'll express that to another. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.